By 2015, the world population will reach nearly 10 billion, and food production will need to grow by 70%. Farmers are now working with IBM and Watson to help increase their crop yields. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com smart. Welcome to Displaced, the podcast from the International Rescue Committee and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Ravi Gurumurthy. And I am Grant Gordon. And today we've got Alex Olenikov, who is the director of the Zolberg Institute for Migration at the New School here in New York. And we're going to be discussing some really fascinating issues about how we help refugees around the world, and in particular, share the responsibility fairly between different nations for helping them. I'm really excited to talk with Alex today, in part because in his previous role, he was the Deputy High Commissioner for the United Nations um, Agency for Refugees and has had a number of positions that give him an interesting vantage point. But one of the things that he's currently involved in is crafting the global framework for refugees, which is one of the new kind of legal architectures that is being generated through the international system to both kind of create a space and direction for how the international system thinks about refugees. And one of the things I'm looking forward to talking to Alex about is, as Grant said, this question about who has the responsibility for tackling the issue of refugees. And in a lot of my work in the past, it's been dealing with other global public goods like climate change, where you get this same issue of we won't act if China won't act. And right now, I think you've got a crumbling of that will to help refugees and everyone is passing the parcel. And what Alex has been thinking really hard about is how do you develop a compact, a sense of collective responsibility that shares things fairly? This is one of the really interesting parts from my perspective. I think it's extremely easy to talk about burden sharing or the idea that all nations or geographies will kind of step up and contribute to help refugees in this moment. But it's really hard to translate that into concrete actions. Um, and uh, the way that we name it actually reveals how we feel about it. We call it it's horrible, burden, burden sharing, right? <laughs> Rather than helping people in extremely hard times. But and, and, they are, and also it assumes that they are a burden when actually we also know that refugees are actually a net positive contributor to economies. This is, this is one of the conflicting narratives in the refugee crisis, though. On one hand, the legal frameworks and the way we talk about them at the international level talks about burden sharing. And I think there's been a move to try to change the narrative to focusing on their economic contributions. And this gets at a theme that we've talked about previously in this show, but how is that actually experienced by the individual families, uh, people, and communities that are experiencing influxes of refugees? And we're definitely going to talk about that disconnect today. And and the other thing that I'm really keen to talk to Alex about is just the, the long arc of how the refugee system has evolved, because Alex is old. He won't mind me telling you that. Um, and he gives us a unique perspective on not only the, the post-war system, but even the pre-war system. So looking forward to a history lesson from Alex. It's, it's, it's one of the things that you can also forget that the refugee enterprise, the kind of legal architecture is like really new, right? It's about 70, 80 years old, kind of coming out of the post-World War II era with seeds before that. But really, that's when everything gets rearticulated. Yeah. And I think one of the conversations that's happening right now is, is that uh, is that framework fit for purpose? And I think you have, you have people who are like, do you know how hard it is to get an international treaty passed? There's no way we're even going to think about tackling that again. Yeah, I'm scarred from thinking about this from a climate change perspective. The idea that treaties can force unwilling governments to do things, I think, is 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 not going to work. But on the other side, this is just 70 years old. Yeah, true. So without further ado, here's Alex. Alex Lenikoff, thanks very much for joining us. I want to start by putting the refugee crisis in a historical context. We often use the fact that more people today are displaced than any time since the Second World War. And we always talk about how those people are displaced not for weeks or months, but years. In fact, on average, I think it's about 10 years. And you go to Kenya and you meet Somalis who've been there uh, for decades. You, you go to Afghanistan or Pakistan and you meet people who've fled the, uh, from the Soviet invasion in 1979. I'm interested in how you see the world today and those trends? Because there is a counter-argument, of course. Stephen Pinker wrote a few years ago about how on many dimensions, such as the number of people whose lives have been lost in combat or infant mortality rates, things are getting uh, remarkably better. So do you think we are at risk of being too catastrophic about how uh, current uh, trends are going? Yeah, yes and no. Uh, The numbers are very large and the times that people stay in exile 
uh, has gone up dramatically. So there's a real crisis in the international refugee protection system, one we haven't seen since its creation. And that, that is very real and very true. On the other hand, um, in a world of 7 billion people, uh, 15 or 20 million refugees, people who've crossed an international border uh, and fled, and 40 million internally displaced people, people who have fled their homes and are still within their country of origin, those are entirely manageable numbers. So we, we, we need to talk about the huge needs of the people who have fled. But at the same time, if the world got together and really wanted to do something about the situation, this could be solved. It's, it's interesting that you – we tend to exaggerate the numbers and make them very scary. And, and what you've done there is say, actually, putting in context, they're actually incredibly manageable given uh, the, the population sizes and, and wealth of well, various think countries. Of, think about the, the country of Lebanon, a country of four million people, took in a million Syrians. The city of Istanbul, about 14, 15 million people, has taken in 250,000 Syrian refugees. And the city survives. The city goes on. It's absorbed people. It's been a tough life for many of the refugees, but the city is coping. And yet when a million people came to uh, Europe, uh, a continent of 500 million people, it led to political crises and, and social crises and supposedly economic crises, which I think has been dramatically overstated. So the, the sense of crisis was used, I think, uh, for the wrong purposes in Europe and, and other countries around the world have, have absorbed far more uh, people and been able to do so. It gets at a uh, fundamental question of how many refugees nation, receiving nations can themselves absorb. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes when we get into burden sharing. But in terms of painting the pictures, when you look at the long arc of the refugee enterprise in the post-World War II era, what are some of the kind of key facts or trends that have changed over that arc that you think really need to be understood to be able to grapple with this? Yeah, so let me take you back to the creation of the international refugee system uh, at, at the end of World War II. Actually, there was a refugee convention and, and, and a high commissioner of refugees after World War I. We tend not to talk about that, but the real system begins after, in the ashes of World War II in the 1950s where an agency is created, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, and a convention is adopted, the 1951 Refugee Convention. At the end of World War II, there were maybe 20 million displaced people in in Europe. Most of those had gone home or been resettled by the time UNHCR is created. So the agency and the convention are adopted in the 1950s really to deal with a residual population of about a million people. And the convention basically said, give these folks rights. Let them take care of themselves in the countries in which they're settled in Europe. Uh, and then they can rebuild their lives. And so the convention is really a human rights convention to give people the ability to take care of themselves, to, to work, to move, to, uh, to practice their religion, to be protected by labor and social laws in the countries in which they were settled in Europe. What happened after and the whole history of the refugee regime has been the movement out of Europe except for the Bosnian Wars um, to the global south, to Africa, to Asia, uh, as as was mentioned, um, the large flow um, out of Afghanistan, many parts of uh, of Africa, and what it, rather than refugees being absorbed into the countries in which to, they fled and given a permanent kind of status, has happened when. Uh, Western Europe and the United States accept what we used to call defectors from Eastern Europe, right? Uh, large refugee camps were created. Uh, and that was the point at which we moved to this world where UNHCR's role became not giving people documents and legal rights and helping them rebuild their lives, but rather they became an assistance agency delivering tents and medicine and the like. And that's the world we now live in. That's the legacy we have where people stay in what I've called the second exile. The first exile is when they're kicked out of their homes and flee across a border. And the second exile is the fact that they stay for such long periods of time in either refugee camps or in refugee settlements or in marginal areas of cities, don't integrate there, can't resettle, can't go home because the conflicts haven't. Uh, ended And the crisis of the refugee system today, it's not just the boats going across the Mediterranean and people drowning in the Mediterranean, which was horrible. Thousands of people have lost their lives there. The crisis are the millions of people stuck in this second exile who cannot rebuild their lives. Uh, and that was unplanned for at the time, never supposed to happen when the refugee system was created. And that's the world we're living in now. And the actual uh, definition of refugees, which was used in the 1951 convention, that's evolved in practice. And you think that we should actually change the definition more fully. Is that, is that to catch up with 
the evolution of practice? Or is it to actually try and accept an even broader range of people uh, to be defined as refugee? Yeah, so so the, the 1951 convention defines a refugee as someone who has a well-founded fear of being persecuted if they go home based on one of five grounds, their race, religion, their national origin, their membership in a social group, or their political opinion. At the time it was adopted, it basically covered all the people in Europe that people thought were refugees. Uh, over time, there have been new drivers of, of, of forced migration. So civil wars, people fleeing the Syrian civil war. Many of them were not specifically targeted based on their race, religion. Some may have been, uh, but many, many were not. And yet the world responded and considered them to be refugees. Uh, similarly, people now uh, being forced to flee climate change or uh, environmental events, floods, earthquakes, tsunamis and the like, uh, they're forced from their homes. They need international assistance uh, and protection to be able to rebuild their lives or to be able to return safely. They're clearly not within the definition of refugee. I'm not for amending the definition in the convention. I think that that definition has worked well. But I am for a recognition uh, that the international community needs to respond to the needs of a far larger category of forced migrants uh, in order that they can, uh, as I said, re rebuild their lives and start fresh. It's interesting. I uh, used to be a country of origin expert for the Democratic Republic of Congo and Rwanda. So I would essentially provide expert uh, testimonies in cases of asylees coming from those countries to attest to whether they met the definition of refugees. And for the Democratic Republic of Congo at that time, when I was doing this, at the very least, the vast majority of clients who I had the privilege of working with managed to escape but did not meet the standard of refugee, precisely for what you're talking about. They were forced from their homes. They had fear of being the victims of violence, but they didn't actually meet the more restrictive definition. And I always left those testimonies, you know, providing expert saying, I don't think these people meet the definition, but please let them stay here. They've like made it over these borders. And, and for the exact reasons that you're talking about, this seems a little outmoded. So let me, a couple of things about that. First of all, we apply a double standard here. Um, people who flee across borders, uh, Somalis who fled into Kenya and Djibouti and Uganda and Ethiopia, they're treated as refugees. The international community responds. There may not be a formal determination made, an individualized determination, but they are treated as refugees by international practice and under a convention that the African countries, the African Union has adopted, which says people who flee civil strife and civil violence are in fact refugees under our regional convention. However, when they get to Germany or to France or the United States, they're then put into an asylum hearing. They're back being asylum seekers and then they have to prove that they meet this narrow definition of refugee. In fact, those countries as well have adopted other forms of protection for people, temporary protected status, subsidiary status. I won't get into all the legal categories. But generally, people are not returned the places where they will be likely to be victims of serious human rights violations. That's not always true. But there are various ways that people can stay. So when I say that, the, that, that our understanding of international protection and assistance should, be, should cover these broader categories, in fact, the world is largely protecting these people already. When a tsunami hits and people flee their homes, the international community responds dramatically with tents and assistance and medical care, taking care of children. Whether or not we call people refugees because we that, that's what we do as an international community. So let me ask you this. So why then maintain the kind of formal de definition of refugees in the convention rather than expand it? What's the value of actually – keeping that and then expanding the broader protection regime for different people. Yeah, well, as I say, an awful lot of refugees are covered by these other regional uh, agreements, so they would fit into into regional definitions of, of refugee. Uh, the, the problem with reopening the refugee definition is simply a political one. Uh, we're aware of the reaction, uh, I think unjust, immoral reaction in some countries, of building walls and barriers of keeping refugees out. I think that's a violation of international law and a violation of a, of a moral code of protecting people who are at risk of great danger. Uh, but we know those political forces in a range of countries. Uh, and to amend an international convention would require consensus. Uh, and there will be lots of political, domestic politics that will not permit countries to sign on to a broader 
definition. So I think just as a practical matter, you're not going to get a broader definition. And if you say, let's start talking about the definition of refugee, you might, in fact, uh, get narrower definitions being proposed. So I'm, I'm proposing something here purely on the basis of pragmatics. But I think, in fact, the international community responds to a broader set of uh, people who are forced to flee. They should do so and they should continue to do so. And, and you think it's possible to make a clean distinction then between migrants and, and refugees. And I'm thinking particularly people who may be fleeing extreme poverty, possibly induced by both a combination of climate change and weak governance. I think that's often uh, difficult to know. In, in, uh, uh, in, uh, in, in about five or six years ago, when uh, a terrible drought uh, hit, Somalia compounded with uh, civil violence, al-Shabaab uh, causing uh, violence inside Somalia, um, several hundred thousand Somalis fled uh, to Ethiopia, Kenya, and other countries. They arrived across the border with children who were dying of malnutrition and disease. They were, we, UNHCR, I was with UNHCR at the time, responded. Uh, the international community sent aid to people. Whether they were there because they were victims of a drought or victims of violence or victims of both didn't matter. We were going to take care of them in those kinds of situations. And it would be silly to try to make the distinction as to which or even if the, 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 the drought leading to uh, malnutrition could also have been a, 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 a result of the violence. So it would be very hard to tease those things out. Now, that's different than saying any person who is impoverished in their home country should get refugee status in another country. That's a, that's a further point that I think it might make sense to distinguish those cases. But when you're talking about mass flows of people across a border for a variety of reasons, it makes no sense to try to separate people out at that point. So you've outlined some principles for how we should treat refugees. And some of those are quite um, akin to some of the uh, principles outlined in uh, the post-World War II order, particularly the focus on safety, enjoyment of asylum, solutions. But one thing that struck me that was different was this focus on mobility. And I just wondered if you could just explain your thinking about why that's important and also what you particularly propose. Yeah. Um, so let me let me take you back to the pre-World War II era. The, 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 the first high commissioner for refugees was a Norwegian diplomat named Fridtjof Nansen. In fact, he'd been a polar explorer before he became a a diplomat, very respected man, and and he was named High Commissioner after the breakup of the Russian Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, and there were lots of people in Europe outside their country. And what they didn't have in these countries was identification. No one, they didn't bring papers with them. The states they were in didn't give them papers. And what Nansen did is he created a document which later became known as a Nansen passport. It was a piece of paper that a person could carry saying, I am this person. This is where I live. This is where I'm from. It was very important to people to have these documents. They became someone, again, a legal person when they had these documents. Now, the other, the, this was followed by the idea that people should be able to move to where they could take care of themselves. So people wanted to maybe leave the country they were in, go to another country, and then maybe return. Now, the Nansen passport didn't give them a right to go to another country, but it, 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 made, it facilitated that movement because the country accepting the person would say, okay, we know who you are, we know you're a refugee. And it did give them a right to return to the country that they had gotten asylum in. So these passports became a kind of uh, a way to facilitate movement within countries as refugees tried to take care of themselves. We've lost that now. And the, as I said, the real crisis of the refugee system is immobility. It's that people have been forced from their homes into the country next door, which is just happenstance as to where they end up, and they never get out. They can't go home because of violence. They're not accepted fully into the country, and they can't travel elsewhere to find work. What I'm proposing is, is a concept of mobility, which I say is really a return to the Nansen passport idea, of giving people the right to move to uh, other countries uh, to, seek, to seek work. Um, if this were done, think about it. You wouldn't need as much international aid because people could go to where they could take care of themselves. The hosting states would be benefited because refugees would leave to go uh, elsewhere. It would be a way to do uh, international responsibility sharing, which is supposed to be the one of the core ideas of, of the international refugee regime, but it doesn't really exist. Um, so it would be, I think, a that would be a win-win, win-win-win. The problem is no country is going to say 
any, any refugee anywhere in the world can come to our country. Uh, they're not going to open up. There won't be open borders for refugees. So, I mean, I think in the long term, that would be the goal is to let refugees travel to where they could take care of themselves and to say to states, you've signed on to this convention. You're a part of this international system and you should allow this kind of movement for refugees. Remember, this is 15 million people out of a world of 7 billion. So the burden would not be would not be huge. But I think the way it could be operationalized now would be to do it regionally. So if if uh, for Somali refugees who are settled now in in Kenya and Ethiopia and Uganda, perhaps there could be movement for them. For refugees in the Central American region, perhaps there could be regional movement among a set of countries and countries could decide to do that. And eventually, perhaps you could move to a broader uh, kind of mobility. What we saw in Europe uh, with the building of these walls against the Syrians and the deal with Turkey between the EU and and Turkey to, to basically stop onward movement of Syrians was the denial of mobility uh, and really forcing people to stay in this country of asylum where they just happen to be next door. Um, so I, I think mobility is would be a huge step forward in 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 repairing a broken system. So the first lesson that excuse I, me just if yeah, I can add just one one thing there the other odd aspect of the system is your Assyrian flees to Turkey they're recognized as a refugee in Turkey. Now they move to Germany. Now they're an asylum seeker all over again and they've got to go through a system and they need to prove that they have a well-founded fear of persecution on one of the grounds that I mentioned. That's a crazy waste of resources. There should be a way to internationally determine someone to be a refugee and that determination then is good for other countries when they travel around the world. Because we have the system, you, you go to the country next door and you can't move, then suddenly you're an illegal alien or an illegal asylum seeker in another country rather than a refugee traveling. But this this gets at the very kind of core of the question, which is where do you draw these lines? And I think it's important because in this political moment when there is such anti-migrant and anti-refugee backlash, people are looking to make determinations about who do you let in. And I think they do generally in public uh, opinion uh, polling supports this, want to support refugees. Public opinion polling from the United States is much more harsh against economic migrants. And so I think that you end up getting – caught in the devil of the details precisely because there's some there does seem to be differentiated support. So when you think about where the line should be, how do you draw that in a way that doesn't waste the resources you're talking about, but is more inviting and more supportive? Yeah, well, I have a slightly broader category of forced migrants, slightly broader than refugee, but I'm not saying all, all, all migrants. I'm not, I'm not an open borders Person, I don't. Not only is that politically sustainable, but I don't think that's the right answer. I think countries do have the right to decide their populations and to control their borders to some extent. We're talking about a very small subset of the human population who can't go home, who've been forced out of their homes, and needs and needs to make a new start. So, so it, the category of forced migrant is, as I said, it's twenty, maybe twenty million people maybe slightly more outside their country now. Those numbers may go up somewhat with climate change, but most people who are going to move because of climate change will move within their country. They'll be internally displaced. Very few will go across international borders. So the line of forced migration, I think, is a, I think that's a category that's not too capacious to scare people, but one where the need is absolutely recognized as just a, a human needs that, that the international community has the means to respond to were it to be allocated in a fair share manner across the countries of the world. So some of these debates are, are very live in the discussion around the global compacts on refugees. I'm interested in your take on uh, how that's going. What elements hold the greatest promise? Yeah, so the um, the global compact on refugees, is, uh, as you know, was uh, – comes out of the New York Declaration from September 2016. And originally, UNHCR had hoped that that declaration itself would include this global compact on refugees. And it had a fairly, fairly narrow compass. It was to create a new way of working on the ground in terms of response to emergencies. And the, the idea was to create something called the Comprehensive Refugee Response Framework. And it was an important shift because it said uh, the response to refugees should not only be a humanitarian one of giving people assistance and food and and health care and education and the like, but there needed to be a development aspect to that, a way that uh, the development agencies could come in and help people uh, attain livelihoods, support to the hosting community, and really a, a development, an economic development uh, model. And that is a significant shift. And, and the CRRF, as we call it, the Comprehensive Refugee Response Framework, uh, was a way to 
say this is what's happening in the world and, and, and we support it. That change had actually already occurred on the ground, but this was all the countries of the world saying we support the CRF. If the compact had been written at that point, I don't think it would have added much to the current response. I say that was already part of the understanding that development guys should come in and help out the humanitarians. But now that we've had another year or two, there are some significant elements uh, that are being added uh, in addition to that. And I think most importantly on this idea of international responsibility sharing. Now, some have proposed um, formulas for sharing out based on a country's uh, GDP or or overall wealth or population size or former admission of refugees and the like. And you could say, you know, Russia should take this many and the United States should take this many and, you know, Latvia should take this many and Togo should take this many. You know, you'd come up with some kind of number. And again, 15 million people distributed would be would be not very large for any of those countries. Uh, if if we did it that way. I think the, it's unlikely you'll get agreement of the countries of the world to come up with that kind of pre-committed uh, uh, quota. So the, so the, what a time to actually be trying to negotiate this kind of thing as well. I mean, yeah, but we're, look, uh, let's, I'm going to finish my point, but I do want to interject on that one. Um, let's not get caught up in the current populist moment. Um, yes, maybe all things are going downhill and we're, we'll end up in a dismal place for the rest of our lives. I think that's unlikely. I think we're in a moment, I think we have to think beyond that five years down the road, 10 years down the road, and begin to create a system that will be robust and resilient for 10 years from now for the oncoming forced migration crises we know will come because of climate and other kinds of events. So if if we are simply reactive to populism, we're going to miss the boat here. And there's nothing wrong with a set of recommendations and proposals that take some time to get put into place, but we'll be ready when, when we need them and we'll also fix the problem. So, yeah. Um, and, and the compact could include – Elements that might not be immediately operationalized but nonetheless become hooks for, for future action. I think they've done that on the responsibility sharing side in the following way. Um, there is included a couple of elements. One are what will be called global uh, summits where states will come in and pledge over a three-year period a certain number of resettlement slots, a certain amount of money, other kinds of assistance that they'll – uh, they'll give, um, which we'll see whether you can get those kinds of commitments. I'm – Somewhat skeptical, but perhaps you can. I think more importantly is the creation of what will be known as um, refugee, a refugee support platform. And that idea is to gather together countries of the world uh, to deal with a particular refugee situation and create a responsibility structure that will then – Put people in a room and say, okay, we've got, we've got 100,000 people who've just recently fled or we've got 250,000 people in a country for five years. We need to do something here in terms of additional money, mobility, um, resettlement, other kinds, of, uh, other kinds of assistance. What's our plan for doing this? We currently don't have that in the system. I mean if I go back to, again to my discussion in the 1950s, remember the problem was not responsibility sharing. That had already happened. 20 million people had gone back or been resettled. You had a residual population that needed to be absorbed in the countries they were living in. So, so the drafters of the convention didn't include in the convention a responsibility system, sharing system. We're now in a different world where that needs to come front and center. And I hope that these elements of the compact grow into a more formal kind of responsibility sharing system we've never had. We've had a little bit – we've had some ad hoc arrangements, so the most – well-known as the Comprehensive Plan of Action adopted in the 1980s to deal with the boat, Southeast Asian boat people, and that involved resettlement, a little bit of return, um, uh, what was called an orderly departure program, bringing Vietnamese refugees out of actually out of North Vietnam. Uh, and But it was an agreement of the world led by the United States, led by the UN, and joined by other countries of the world. What we need to do is regularize that. So when a crisis hits or a longstanding situation happens, that hap that, that occurs let me just – if I can add one more thing here. Think about both Syria and Bangladesh uh, and, and the Rohingya fleeing Myanmar into Bangladesh. Five million plus Syrians. There has not yet been an international conference on Syrian refugees. There have been so-called pledging conferences where countries of the world come in and say, well, we'll give a certain amount of money and maybe we'll take 5,000. Of course, the United States has dramatically cut the number of refugees it's bringing in through a resettlement. But the UN, the United States, the leading powers of the world never got together to say – What's a comprehensive response as we did with the Vietnamese? Similar uh, with the Rohingya, a, a classic case and one that we haven't had in a while, a classic case of a refugee population. These are people being targeted based on their race and their religion and killed and persecuted and pushed into another country. 
the countries of the world have not gotten together to say we now have three, four hundred thousand people forced to flee, joining another half million or so already in Bangladesh. How do we respond? But the compact, by including these elements, we might get to a point where then it becomes a regular event that the countries of the world get together through either the summits or these platforms to say, okay, we have a we have a problem, we need to deal with it. And that would be a huge advance in the system if it actually moves forward. We know you like to stay up to date on all the latest news. It's why you're listening to this podcast. Well, now you can stream our podcast and several others like it on Spotify. I listen to my music on Spotify, but I'd not listened to a podcast until just now. And it's really easy. Just open the app on your mobile device or desktop, click on the browse channel, then click on the podcast section. You can also stream on your smart speaker. Start streaming today to stay up to date on the world's latest news on Spotify. So one of the counter arguments to the to the Global Compact on Refugees is that a lot of the language it uses is weaker than some of the other conventions. So for example, it calls on interested states to participate rather than all states. It uh, discusses needs of individuals more so than rights of individuals. And I would love you to reflect on how you think the language in the compact is evolving to either create a point of departure that's going to let us reach the place we want to be in 10 years or if the holes that are forming in it are going to ultimately generate kind of a Swiss cheese-like document. Yeah, I think it's too early to tell. I mean, I I really don't know. I mean, we've gotten to a point in international negotiations and decision-making that I think is an unfortunate place. We don't we no, we no longer create international law or binding commitments. So we write documents that countries say we're committed to doing X and then five years later it's monitored as to whether they've done X. But but the documents never say these are binding commitments. That's true for the Refugee Convention. It's true for the Compact on Migrants. That's the Refugee Compact and the Compact on Migrants. It's also being written side by side with the Refugee Compact. I think that's unfortunate. Um, but you will not get states signing up to formal commitments. That's been clear from day one after the, the New York Declaration. So we're stuck with what we have. I think what you can do, however, is to build structures that get states together to do things rather than these unilateral commitments. In the next three years, we'll take you know 30,000 refugees. Create a platform, give it a problem to work on, and states are more likely actually to do something. So I'm I'm okay with the idea of a – a bad phrase, coalition of the willing getting together to to work on these refugee problems because it may well eventuate into a regular way of doing business that can grow. But you are left, just as you said, in a world of non-binding commitments. Um, but, you know, maybe that you – know, maybe people just won't show up at these events. But I think there are enough states that have shown an interest in these platforms that they will show up and really try to do something about the the situation. So it's a halfway point. And it could, it could go either way. We'll see. I'm always I'm, I'm always optimistic, optimistic, but frequently disappointed. So let's dive into the equation that tells you how many Syrians should go to Togo. So I think the I think the motivating factor uh, or fact that you know there's 22 million refugees and that have a population of seven billion that that's not a big problem to solve, um, but it. Uh, hinges on burden sharing. It hinges on how many refugees you disperse across which states, what you give them, um, and how you determine that. So I'd love you to talk about what a useful framework and set of principles are for how individuals should think about burden sharing. Right. Well, I mean, we know we know the, the, the richest countries in the world. We know the countries that have been generous to refugees in the past. Um, and we know countries that have similar ethnic or religious groups to refugee flows that have come out. So for each situation, we could come up with a, with a list of countries, I think, that, could, that can burden share. I, I, don't, I think a rigorous formula might be a set of benchmarks that states could measure themselves against, but they'll always have reasons for why they haven't reached a, a benchmark that someone else uh, assigned them. But I think it could be helpful and it'd be based on those those kinds of factors. But when you get down to it, even with the 5 million Syrian refugees, you know, 
there's no reason in the world a million, million did go to Europe. And if it had been done in an order, if Europe had said at the beginning, you know what, we're going to take 200,000 refugees a year out of Syria, uh, out of uh, Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan, and they'd gone and appropriately been allocated among the countries in Europe. And the United States said over that period of time, we'll take 500,000. Not a large number. The U.S. took 800,000 Cubans. It took a million Vietnamese refugees. So over three or four or five years, 500,000 Syrian refugees would not have been a huge number. Australia takes another 50,000 at that point. Canada takes another 100,000 or so. And then the rest can stay in, in the countries. You've got that set. Now, France may take a few or you know, Iceland may take a few. I mean you could – you know, South Africa – you could get to those numbers, but once you've got 10 or 20 countries participating, others will come in be, through peer pressure and wanting to be part of part of that club. So I, I wouldn't do this rigorously by some kind of algorithm, but we could come up with those ideas pretty quickly, it seems to me. So, so let me just push back for a quick second. And yeah. I think there's a few different ways you can think about burden sharing. One is that countries who are wealthy or who have a larger population bear more of a responsibility. Uh, second, countries who have actually been responsible for what's going on in uh, a region driven by conflict may have more of a responsibility to contribute either by accepting refugees or paying in. Right, right now, you just see proximity as the you know number one predictor of whether countries actually receive refugees. You could also think about, as you mentioned, thinking about burden sharing as a function of where we actually think refugees are going to do well. Um, and so, I think that. I think the question is, what are the inputs that countries should be thinking about? You named OECD countries there, America, Australia. Are those where we should be focusing? Should we be bringing new countries into the fold? What What are the inputs? What would be, what, what's the point of having a sort of discussion about the abstract principles if there's no actual mechanism for operationalizing them? And it feels like uh, a sort of... It, it reminds me actually of the climate change discussion where there was a long discussion about whether historic responsibility should be factored into people's emissions commitments. And it just polluted the politics rather than being useful for actually solving anything. Well, actually, I mean, I'll answer both those. Um, I, I think that I, the creation of this platform, if it, it, it needs work still in the document. I mean, we're still going through the drafts and the compact. And I think there's more to be done. I think that creates a structure for actually – actually decision-making among a group of states that will grow, I hope would grow over time through a set of standard procedures, for regular procedures for operating, which is more than an individual commitment. Uh, so I, I actually think there is, there is something in the document that could grow into an action group that would, that would do something. Um, I think of your, kind of your list of um, factors, I, unfortunately, I don't think you will find states saying, we've caused this problem, we have to deal with it. Um, you know, and, and exactly figuring out what state has been responsible for the violence in Syria would be very difficult <laughs> given the proxy wars that are being fought there and the various groups that are there. So I, we could try – political scientists could try to figure that out. I think that's not going to work in the international politics world among, uh, among, among states. And say so not to take people in. I mean Japan is one of the – you know, does a very small – Resettlement program, but is the second or third largest contributor to UNHCR with hundreds of millions of dollars a year. So there are various ways to do it. Or states may decide that people have talked about these kind of tradable cap and trade systems where states will be allocated uh, a certain share and they could then pay another state to, to do its share because it might be cheaper for the United States to, uh, to have people uh, hosted in a neighboring African country. Now, that at some point doesn't look, I mean, just looks like you're not undertaking your obligation and you're putting people in worse situations than they'd be if they were in your country and you're you know, buying states off. And so it would have to be done in a careful way. But there, there well, could yeah, be ways I mean, that those wrong, transfer could be done. What would be wrong with that? Because uh, in some ways what happens at the moment is we give money to different countries to try and look after refugees, but the price is determined by rich donor countries. If it was a cap-and-trade system, actually the price will be determined by demand and supply. And if actually countries aren't prepared to take on refugees, the price would go up. You have to be very careful on the countries that you're paying to take care of people are taking care of them in a particular way. I'll give an example. I'm very disturbed by the Israeli uh, deportation of asylum seekers out of Israel to Rwanda uh, and to Uganda where promises are made about how they'll be cared for. But apparently they're not met and people or documents are taken when they arrive and they end up trying to be smuggled into Europe and the like. So th there are problems with those kinds of – transfers mm -hmm. um, in a way that um, would really have to be closely monitored. But you, in a fair and just world, you could have a system where that might work. So I'd like to get on to more about the mechanisms for enacting some of these 
principles of burden sharing. And one question I've got is whether we really should look to the regional level rather than the global. For all the reasons you outlined earlier, global agreements generally, if you even look at climate change and the difference between Paris and Copenhagen, it went from being a very binding treaty uh, proposed into Copenhagen to something which was basically what George Bush proposed, a pledge and review uh, agreement in, in Paris. And yet at the regional level, you do get more rules-based systems. Um, the European Union has been groping in a sort of faltering way towards quotas, uh, with some countries refusing to take them on, despite the, the rules that were agreed. I'm interested in whether you think there is opportunity there, particularly given there is a shared interest in solving those problems because they're all having to deal with the migrants from... Uh, yeah, I think I, I, they need to be complementary, but I think the regional approach is a very strong approach. And so there's been an agreement now among Somali hosting countries, which is, as I've mentioned, is uh, Kenya, Ethiopia, Djibouti, Uganda, and Somalia. Uh, there are about a million Somali refugees. Most of them are in those countries. And they've worked out an agreement amongst themselves that would uh, work towards giving people a right to work and take care of themselves, making return to Somalia possible and uh, uh, stable and safe and, and the like. Uh, but it needs the support of the global system because it requires additional development dollars to come into those countries and the like. So as I imagine this platform idea moving forward, you have we'd have a global platform, but it could be expressed at the regional level with hosting states, regional hosting mm -hmm. states there, the international community helping to pay for that. And then again, the idea of mobility within those states and the region allow people to move to where they can take care of themselves. So I would want complementary systems rather than choosing either, either or. And so in this type of model, does the international system then essentially play a organizer and provider of financial incentives for regions to come together? Would, is that how that kind of financing in of part, this gets structured? But, but it should also be resettlement. I mean, you know, the United States has really adopted a position. The Trump administration said this very clearly. It's cheaper to take people, take 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 care of people over there. In fact, it'd be cheapest to leave them in Syria and build a safe zone in Syria, which I think is not a good idea, but it's cheaper to take care of them there. We don't need them here. And the attitude that that is, what that expresses about the U.S. commitment to refugee protection uh, and, and the benefits of having refugees in our country, I, I find so sad, so troubling. So it, and, and I think the, the hosting states are perfectly right to say, you know, do your share, guys. You know, you can take 10, 20, 50,000 people and not even notice it. I occasionally get questions from people saying, you know, what's the economic impact of refugees in the United States? And my answer is zero, right? If you take 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 refugees, half of whom may join the labor force and a labor force of 150 million people in the United States, there is no impact economically. We can take it and we should be taking The U.S. used to be the leader on this. Trump administration has cut by more than half the numbers coming into this country. I think that is something we will we will long regret and will return to better days. There, there is new economic work coming out on the impact of refugees in the United States done by a few economists, Evans and Co., that essentially shows that refugees that have come to the United States after about 11, 12 years start actually being net contributors Correct. to the economy. Right. And I think as a result of the backlash against refugees around the economic arguments, a lot of research has been done to try to make the argument for the economics of it. But then it gets back to, I think, the thing that you're pointing at, which is this is fundamentally more about a normative claim and a broader macro level impact. I, I'm saying even if the impact were negative, there's still a, a reason to take care of people who've been forced out of their homes. But you're right. Now, let me a brief story on this. The uh, um, In order to prove its case that uh, it was cheaper to take care of people in the countries of first asylum, the Trump administration asked the Department of Health and Human Services to do a study. And it said, compare the cost of refugees in the United States and the cost of refugees in hosting states. Uh, HHS did the study and like good uh, civil servants said, well, it's not just the cost, it's also the benefits. And they did the kind of work you're describing and cited these studies saying over 10, 12, 15 years, actually refugees will pay more in taxes than they'll take out of the system because of the original grants they get once they get here. Uh, they got to the White House. White House didn't like the study because that's not what we asked you to do. We wanted to show it was cheaper to take care of someone in Kenya, uh, in, in Nairobi than it is in New York. Uh, not that these people are a benefit here. And they buried the report. And the report has never been released. Uh, but that's, you know, that's the world we're living in right now. Luckily, the report came out another way. And report, we know the facts. Right. The report was then leaked. I yeah. think it is now accessible online for anybody yes. who actually wants to go and right. see the case by the U.S. government for taking more refugees that the U.S. government then put under the sheets. Correct. I'd like to take you back to the, the, the point you made earlier, which is about how uh, 
international agreements, particularly involving finance, can create the incentive for refugee hosting countries to actually provide rights to refugees. And, and one example is the Refugee Compact in Jordan, where firms have an incentive to actually employ refugees, because if they do so, um, they get access to lower trade barriers and the EU market. The government also has incentives because they get money from the World Bank. Now, the actual implementation of it has been pretty weak. Um, I think the actual dosage of resources has not been enough to open the behaviour change by government or by firms. But the idea feels a really exciting one and one that could be replicated in multiple places. I think the idea was an important one. It was a way to try to incentivize uh, the creation of jobs for refugees as well as for hosting states. So it represented a, an attempt to, let's say, to development agencies help in the development of these countries, both for the citizens of the country and for the refugees who were there, which then shows to the country that refugees can be a benefit to the hosting states. That was a good thing. It gives refugees a future by letting them work and the like. Um, the problem with the uh, Jordan Compact, and I think it's largely not been successful, uh, was that no one had really thought it through. It was dreamt up uh, by, uh, by heads of state and academics without actually ever talking to refugees. So the idea was that, that you'd create in these special economic zones, industrial parks or factories and the like, and the Syrians would come in and half the workers would be Syrian. But no one asked the Syrians if they wanted to do the work, if they wanted to travel that far to do the work. And there have been very few uh, takers of these jobs among Syrians. Similarly, there was an idea that uh, goods would be able to travel freely without tariff to the EU, but these were goods that were already coming to the United States free of tariffs. So the economics has not worked. Uh, the jobs hasn't worked. These have not been successful. It points I mean, to when the, we worked with the – we worked on this and, and tried to look at the actual sectors that were eligible. Yeah. And when you do the actual analysis, the compact hasn't changed the incentives that much for those firms. And no right. one had done that before right. actually making the agreements. Right, exactly. And it, it points to two things. The first is – and this is a really – another failure of the system – the participation of refugees and refugee voices in creating the programs that affect their lives. Um, I can't tell you the number of international conferences I've been to where we talk about refugees and refugees are not there. The executive committee of UNHCR, about 100 states now, member states of the UN, they all speak about the programs that for refugees. Refugees are not represented on the Refugee Executive Committee, which could be done. UNHCR could work with refugees around the world to have Seems them like point representatives and the like, right, and bring them in. But refugees uh, are not there. So uh, refugees have to be part of these discussions. There's some lang soft language in the compact about this, but not nearly enough to really push it. The second would it, would it is, not just be a token involvement, though? No, it would have to be more than that. I mean, right now, occasionally there's a panel where a token refugee is asked to talk about the refugee experience or some dramatic thing they've done, some business they've started or some schooling they've done or they've gone off to Oxford. And, you know, and, and those are, I think, they're nice, but but they miss the point. I think if you – so, for example, about five about – Six, seven years ago, UNHCR did some consultations with women around the world, women refugees around the world. And they talked to more than 1,000 women in, I think, 10 or 12 different places about their needs. And they came up with an agenda for protection for women, which was – which the, the similar ideas were echoed throughout uh, these uh, consultations no matter where the refugees were, about safety in camps and in settlements, about the provision of reproductive health uh, uh, got, um, assistance and sanitary uh, napkins and assistance, about jobs and livelihoods. There were a set of issues that women refugees were very clear on as to what their needs were, which did not match up to the programming that was being done, which was largely focused primarily on either vulnerable women uh, uh, or uh, or single men who needed work. So talking to refugees, you actually learn something. It's different than a display of one refugee. But let me go back to your question about the compact, Ravi. The other problem with that um, is that the – we're still talking in old development terms. The idea is you bring in development assistance to create business, to reduce poverty. Very important and the you know, this has been important work around the world. But there are broader macroeconomic policies that are not factored in here. So what does it mean to say to a state, make sure refugees are in your development plan, but at the same time the IMF is saying, but you have to adopt an austerity budget for your citizens in order to get loans from the IMF. There ha so – 
how is debt relief or a debt moratorium being thought about for a country that's now taken in huge numbers uh, of refugees? What are changes in tax structures uh, that should be undertaken? What are other kinds of macroeconomic policies that could be adopted that would make life better for both the citizens and the refugee-hosting countries? And those are operating in two very separate worlds. And to, rather than more Jordan compacts, you could probably accomplish a lot more through that. One last point on this. Um, I think the idea of simple job creation is probably not the way to go on this. I know there's a lot of thinking we can – you know, uh, start a business by giving some people money. I think you ought to give people the ability to take care of themselves. That would be mobility. It might be cash uh, as the, the start. It would be internet connectivity around the world. It would be electricity and other forms of power. And human beings, particularly refugees, are creative enough to say if you gave them those elements of rebuilding their lives, how to rebuild them lives, rather than saying we're going to start a you know electrician shop here or a bakery or a restaurant where six people will be hired, and that's been the focus. These kind of micro programs, rather than larger structural changes that will allow people to to pursue their own dreams. One idea that the Centre for Global Development have been pushing is the idea of an international financial facility to try and encourage countries to take on more refugees, open up more slots. So you could imagine, for instance, every uh, country that takes on a refugee gets a certain amount per person. Yeah, that's another kind of idea like that. And it's something you'd mentioned before. That'd be sort of almost like this cap and trade program. Yeah, you could have a global facility for resettlement for countries that aren't uh, that, that need this kind of support for refugees. I think that's a, that's a good idea. Do you think it has a chance of changing the politics in any countries? I mean, clearly there are places where the politics is so toxic now that no amount of money will frankly make political leaders uh, take this it's on. Not gonna, but- it won't change Hungary, but it might change... Uh, uh, developing states uh, the, to take more uh, countries further than just the the countries of first asylum if they if they come with packages of money again that would have to be monitored uh, carefully and again you'd probably have states willing to do that because the, the the developed states saying you know it's cheaper to take care of people as we know in, in other places but you know the one thing I wouldn't lose here this is not just a question of dollars and cents um, as we all know and one of the benefits of the U.S. refugee program is that it's been decentralized. Refugees who come in, whether it's 50, 60, 100,000 a year, are resettled in in small towns around the United States by nine organizations, most of them religious organizations. They come in with situations supported by a a church group or or another, another group in the town, a family in the town. And it allows Americans to get to know and see refugees, which are, you know, the pictures of refugees of the distant people who are, you know, drowning in boats or starving, uh, crossing a border or or living in dire situation in camps. And, and, you know, I often say these are people who two, three, four, five years before were, were living a normal life in their home country, taking care of their kids and hanging out with friends and, and uh, her, you know, tending a herd or growing crops or working in a small business and they've been uprooted and put into this unnatural situation that they can't get out of in this in the second exile and what the refugee resettlement program does is it it, it shows people um, the that these are people it really brings it home to have that kind of resettlement so even if it were cheaper to house all refugees elsewhere I would still argue for a robust US program because that's what will build the support for the money to go elsewhere as well. You need both of those. It's uh, it's interesting because I think when you look at the electoral data from 2016 and just stories that are coming out, the areas that were most anti-immigrant um, oftentimes had the fewest immigrants. There's an amazing This American Life episode that profiles a city, I believe, that was in Alaska of about 200 people that is vitriolically anti-refugee, and they've never had a refugee in their town. But when you look at towns where there's higher levels of uh, integration, you see much more support for the enterprise fully, which I think is the one of the political motives of uh, maintaining the program, um, and is going to be I think one of the long arcs of uh, of trying to actually get it uh, implemented. Look, the none none of the Trump immigration and refugee proposals is approved by a majority of Americans. Not the wall, not the cuts in legal immigration, not the not the Muslim ban, not the refugee uh, the refugee limits, not the ending of DACA. All of those majority of Americans oppose those policies of this administration, and they will be changed. They'll be changed through popular 
uh, movements. They'll be changed through democratic, small d, democratic politics, and they'll be changed through the moral conscience of this country. So you were the deputy high commissioner for the UN Refugee Agency, and you had worked in the U.S. government beforehand, but largely were a practicing legal scholar in universities. What was the thing that most surprised you um, about the UN Refugee Agency or the refugee enterprise from your position as the deputy high commissioner? I'll tell you two things. First of all, I used to say to the UNHCR staff is you're all crazy people. <laughs> because these are – I'm a former UNHCR staffer and I can agree with that. You'll agree. These are people who decide that their professional career will be spent moving every two or three years to some of the most dangerous places in the world, caring for some of the most needy people in the world. They have difficulty maintaining their families in doing so because in a third or half of these places, they're not entitled to bring – they're not permitted by UN rules to bring their families with them. Uh, and uh, so there's a strain on the family. By the end of their careers, they don't belong anywhere. They, they have no home country anymore because they've dedicated their lives to international protection of refugees. And that is a rare person willing to undertake that kind of work. So I say as, you're all As you're a all show nuts. that's trying to motivate yeah. people into yeah. the humanitarian yeah. industry, you're not selling us well right now. <laughs> well, you get the benefit of a, a life well led. Um, so that was one thing was to, to really see the dedication of the staff. I mean – I, I, I spent a night, one night in Somalia and I at a UNHR compound. I spent it behind barbed wire and locked doors and bombs went off around this uh, place at other times. Uh, these people were tremendously courageous and, and dedicated in the work they did. So that's one thing that I was really – I knew that uh, um, sort of abstractly but to see that up close was really startling. The second on the refugee side was to really – begin to understand the depth of this immobility of refugees. So I had spent my life, I'd, 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 I'd done a few asylum cases as a lawyer. I'd taught refugee law for many, many years. And there all the focus was on people who'd gotten in the United States, asked for asylum, went to a court. They weren't detained. They were living in communities. And we won most of our cases, but many didn't win. But ultimately, people found a, most found a way to to stay here and be protected and then to get on with life in the United States. And when I realized, when it finally hit me that the vast majority of refugees stay in these uncertain situations, their lives are in limbo for year after year um, in these uh, countries of first asylum, that really made me, really my central focus then began on bringing the development actors in to change the way they lived and to work on solutions to refugee situations. I'll tell you one uh, one story about this, if we have a minute. Um, I was in a, a refugee camp in, in Djibouti, a small uh, uh, country on the Gulf of Aden. And they, have a, they had a camp called Ala Ade. And it was, uh, we took a helicopter to get there. It was hard to drive there through gullies and through roads and desert and the like. And it was a camp there because the camps are where the governments put them. And these camps are usually not in the garden spots of the country. So this was out in the middle of really nowhere very dry. It looked like a lunar landscape to me, actually. And people are living, 19,000 people were living there in a very hard situation. Um, and as we toured the camp um, and met the people, um, there was a small girl there. She must have been mm, seven or eight years old. And she held up a sign written in English. And it said, we need durable solutions. And I thought, you're darn right, you need durable This is not, this is not a solution for you to grow up in this kind of camp. And then when I was in Kenya in the, um, the camp, the largest refugee, then the largest refugee camp in the world, the Dadaab camp, it peaked at about 400,000 people during a, the Somali crisis of a few years ago. Um, I, I learned, I think, the most troubling fact I learned in my entire time at UNHCR, and that was that there were probably 10,000 children in this camp who had been born to people who had been born in the camp. And that's just not right. That's just a failing of the international community to allow children of children to grow up in refugee camps. Now, only about 25 – I mean this is a misconception. Only about 25 percent of the world's population live in refugee camps. But even refugees who don't live in camps live in settlements or, or urban – marginal areas in urban life. And by, by still being refugees and not having a formal status, their lives maintain uh, this limbo status, which is just no way to live. And it's – easily fixable with a little bit of political will and some true international responsibility fixing. I say easily, not politically easy, but financially and in terms of the numbers, it would be easy in, in, in a different world. 
Alex, we started by talking about the unprecedented crisis and the, the terrible trends that we see in the world. And I'm just interested in your reaction almost emotionally to that. And some people react fatalistically and give up and feel jaded. It feels like to me you're becoming more radical and more angry. I wouldn't say angry. I'd say committed. Um, I think, um, you know, I've seen a lot around the world and it's let me have a better understanding of the problems, the, the pressure points, the, the problems that need to be fixed. And, and I really hope this global compact can at least have enough parts to it that we can build on later in terms of self-reliance and mobility and protection and rights. We didn't even mention that the Global Compact really doesn't say enough was a question you had, Grant, yet earlier about, about rights of refugees. There's no, no right of access to ask for asylum uh, recognized in the, uh, in the compact. So there's more work that needs to be done there. Um, and I, you know, the, what I would really like to see in the world uh, is an organization of refugee voices. I'd like to see political action by refugees. Very easy for me sitting in a studio in New York City to say that. Very hard for refugees to do that who feel vulnerable. Uh, but, but with advocates uh, and movements, there, there can be refugee voices that demand to be heard and we can facilitate that. Um, and I think we can we – can, hopefully create a movement for people around the world that will push for these kinds of, these kinds of changes. So, um, uh, you know, once you've seen the problem, you've got to be committed to the solution. Alex Zelenikoff, thank you very much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about what we discussed in our show notes, and please do check out Alex's new book, The Arc of Protection Towards a New International Refugee Regime at publicseminar.com. It'll be coming out in the next few weeks. We'd love to hear from you as well. Leave us a review on the show or write us an email at displaced at rescue.org or get in touch on Twitter at Grant M. Gordon and at Argura Murthy. And if you haven't already, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week.